Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Soulful Connections with Sam Black. Here, you will find opportunities for healing, renewal, and insightful conversation. Sam is an international psychic medium, trainer, and wellness coach, and is your answer for filling the soul. Good morning and welcome to Soulful Connections. I'm your host, Sam Black, and I am so excited to be joining you live this morning with my good friend, Karen Hordovenko. We are going to be exploring the topic of PTSD, how it impacts, how it impacts the people you love, and some solutions so that you can find another way. So before um, I introduce Karen, I just want to say, you know, she is such a wealth of information. You're going to absolutely love her. So Karen, welcome to the show. Hello. Do you hear me? I can hear you. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Oh, you're so welcome. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. I'm so excited. My bags are packed. Right after the show, I'm driving to Sudbury, um, so I will be able to see Karen and hug her in person very soon, but for now, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to the show today, as well as seeing you very, very soon. Awesome, awesome. So today, we're going to be exploring PTSD and maybe some of the myths around that, some solutions for help. Karen, you are absolutely the best person I can think of to have on the show for this topic because you have so much experience in helping people. So can you share with everybody just a little bit about yourself and what makes you such a wonderful helper for people with PTSD, among many, many other things? Well, you know, my background is a little bit varied. I started as a nurse back in 1988 and uh, went on and became a nurse practitioner in 97. And uh, my initial um, training led me into the field of cardiology. And so I was dealing with a lot of people, not only in the ICU, um, but also um, in the community-based nursing and cardiac care and realized that a lot of people had depression or negative emotions um, when they experienced a cardiac event. So I started to really look at what is it that we're not doing in healthcare as far as as the emotional piece that would stop somebody from getting back to life because trauma can come in many, many forms. Um, so that was sort of the first way that I started to look at it. It was the first time I started to look at how things were, were we weren't noticing the emotional component of people's life experiences, specifically in the healthcare system. Now, from there, I went on and, and started working with uh, cardiac prevention in my nurse practitioner clinic and realized that, you know, it was never about the food. It was always about something in behind the food. And so I started to challenge myself on what is it that we need to do differently in our healthcare system that would allow us to put the whole person together, not just a diagnosis, but what are we really missing? And so with uh, ongoing um, um, work in the area of addictions as well as smoking cessation, I've added to my educational component and also some family members in my life that struggled with emotional distress. On came, you know, my opportunity to help people in many areas of trauma. And PTSD seems to be one of those things that just come in many different forms and many different ways um, with many different faces. And uh, so it's led me down the path to help people in that way. Wonderful, wonderful. And you know, I love how varied your experience is. And that was one of the things I remember when we first met, I was like, yes, she gets me because so many people say, wow, you've done a lot of different things, Sam. And absolutely. You know, I, I've done a lot of different things as well. But like you, I find that they just really build upon each other so that I can help more people. And that's really the benefit of it at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I think that's what we need to to all look at when we're helping people is that how do we take what we already know and then keep on growing from that um, so that we can actually continue to learn ourselves? Because I think one of the things that people do in healthcare, which is a disservice, whether it's uh, nursing, whether it's medicine, whether it's therapists, uh, social workers like yourself, um, is that they tend to stop educating themselves after they're finished their program. And so they just get into the same uh, the same sort of techniques over and over again, the same mundane work, and, and sort of put themselves in a box and say, well, this is all I have. 
And I think that's really unfortunate, not only for the client or the patient that someone's working with. I think it's really unfortunate for the practitioner or healthcare provider because that's how burnout happens within the system as well. And uh, so I'm a big proponent of thinking outside the box. And I question myself all the time. If something's not working with my client, is there something I'm missing? Is there something that I can do differently? Is there a different focus that we can take? Because at the end of the day, my goal is to get everybody back to living life well. And with trauma, a lot of people believe that they don't have any other option other than to feel the way they feel beyond, you know, a wealth of medications that are not really getting them to feel happy, but they're taking away the edge. Uh, And then from that, it's like, this is my life. And they become victimized over and over and over again, and they stay stuck. And so my goal in life, my goal in my career, my goal for every client is, okay, if this is not working, we've got to make a change. I love it. I love it. And, you know, I really practice along the same way as far as this is what you came in for. However, this might be a better solution. And that philosophy of we're just here to play. If we can just agree to play while we're together, something's going to work for you. And if it's not, we're going to play a different game and figure something else out because there's always solutions. And it's so true when people are experiencing trauma, when they're reliving trauma, they really have that tunnel vision and they're not able to see all of the solutions around them. And that is one of the beautiful benefits of having you here today, because we're not only going to explore what PTSD and how it impacts, but we're also going to explore some of the solutions to help people really start living their best every single day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in my background, in particular, more so in my social work field as a child protection worker, I did come across so many experiences of PTSD. And sometimes, many times actually, it would be undiagnosed or it would be misdiagnosed as something else. Um, Can you share a little bit about what is PTSD and what are some of the things that we frequently see when we're working with clients that have that? Right. So, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder is what the PTSD sound is, uh, is an acronym for. Um, and uh, it's sort of only been known in the last sort of decade. We've sort of diagnosed it with a, with a, with a label or a title. But, I mean, trauma has been, around, um, has been around for a long time. And you can go back from the beginning of, you know, look at traumas from the Great Depression and World War I and World War II where, where um, our military men and women would come back from um, those uh, horrific worst scenes and just not be able to cope with life. So we often saw it back then, um, and we see it more with today with not only military, we see it with first responders. Um, and that could be um, like an EMS or an ambulance uh, driver attended, uh, physicians, emergency department, nurses, uh, anyone, firefighters, anyone who comes upon a scene that's horrific can experience PTSD, but it can also show up in other things. So people who have been physically abused, people who have been sexually abused, people who have been emotionally abused can have, an, have an, um, sort of a compounding effect of emotional events or, or, or other traumatic events that create symptoms of what's considered PTSD. And those symptoms would be things such as anxiety, feeling uh, terrified to leave the house because they're afraid of an event, even though logically they know nothing's going on. But this ongoing running of, of uh, the event that goes on and on in their head, like a video or like an audio, keeps playing in the back, so they relive it over and over again. So people have anxiety and irritability and depression and outbursts, anger and avoidance and things like that that actually are an accumulative of, of symptoms that we put together and diagnose somebody as PTSD. And it usually happens within, you know, months of event or accumulatively over time, years of people experiencing trauma. Absolutely. And there's also that experience of compound trauma. So we see this, I see this with my clients who have served um, Perhaps, you know, their father was in World War II and then they were in Vietnam and then somebody was in Desert Storm and then their child's gone again. So it's that compound for war piece. However, we also see that with people who've had car accidents and the abuse, as you mentioned, and often when we see families who've experienced abuse of one form, likely they've actually experienced 
all three or at least two forms. So that would be um, neglect, physical, emotional, and sexual. So four total. And so we also have these situations where we have compound trauma. And so they kind of fall between the cracks because people just say either mental health and just diagnose it as that in general, and or they just say it's from a chaotic lifestyle without actually treating the trauma itself. So I love that you're, you're pointing out all of these different things because often people say, oh, I know PTSD is, that's what soldiers get. And absolutely, I'm not minimizing because the things they've been exposed to absolutely have led to many having um, forms of trauma. However, it's also in our everyday life. Everyone you're interacting with knows at least one person who has suffered with trauma. It's just not often talked about. Absolutely. And, and often people don't think that, well, you know, they, they went through so much more, so I can't possibly have it. Or somebody who's gone through a, a horrific event may look at somebody else and say, yeah, but you only had that in your life. I had this. So people even within the system start to compare each other and say, well, you can't have it because I do and vice versa. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sad. And and at the end of the day, though, you know, again, here's a diagnosis that often people hold on the belief that once they have it, they can't uh, get rid of it or it's a permanent thing. And I work really hard to not only help my client out of that diagnosis, but starting with convincing them that, you know, symptoms, diagnosis and mental health, are an accumulation of symptoms. And so often um, therapies, and this is, you know, I'm not at all trying to minimize different therapeutic approaches, but again, if it's not working for a client or a patient, the therapists are really encouraged them to start thinking outside the box because it shouldn't take years and years and years of therapy to help minimize the pain, to help to get rid of the pain, help get rid of the trauma. It should take actually a short period of time when you're working with the mind and the brain in a way that actually is there to heal, not just compound the problem. So there's, there's different therapies that, that people look at that are not successful. Um, however, I look back again at the diagnosis and say, okay, if we have this diagnosis and this diagnosis is a cumulative, uh, maybe one event or numerous events, as you mentioned, Sam, and come from different um, um, perceptions of what is considered trauma and not. If the symptom is there, then the, the pain is still there. So let's put it in the context of something like uh, an engine, a vehicle. If you have an, uh, a vehicle that keeps having to go into the shop to be fixed and, and what they're doing in the shop gives you temporary um, sort of control or temporary fixing of the problem, then they might have fixed it or they might have just put a temporary bandage on it because they just, they're, trying, they're, they're trying all these different things. And you have to keep going back for the same problem. Obviously, somebody's not getting to the real root cause. They might be trying to, they might be picking up other things around, but they're not really getting to really what's causing the cascade of events that's causing the vehicle not to work well, right? So in healthcare, the, how we think of the mind, we have to think about it from the same context. If what we're doing is, is if we have this diagnosis, and this could be PTSD, this could be anxiety, this could be depression, this could be any of the mental health diagnoses. If we're looking at the diagnosis, we have to look at what, is, what are the symptoms that's a part of that diagnostic uh, uh, picture. And then we have to actually go back and say, okay, where did all this start in the first place? And the challenge that a lot of therapists um, have with treating our physicians as well is, one, they want to just treat the symptoms. So let's give them a medication to get, some, get, the, get the edge of the pain sort of settled down, which, again, is, is a way to get things settled for a temporary means, but if we're not getting back to where the events have happened, then we're not actually treating. We're just putting a bandage on the problem. So eventually, if you have a broken pipe and you just duct tape the pipe, you can keep duct taping that pipe as the water comes through till eventually the pipe breaks. So mm-hmm. I like to go back and get the pressure off the break. Maybe we have to put in a new pipe and then the person can actually live a free life. So the mind works the same way. And some people, believe it or not, have suppressed because the unconscious mind or subconscious mind, depending on, you know, whatever school of thought you've been trained in, um, has a really amazing way of taking trauma and hiding it until you're ready to deal with it. The challenge is it's not really hid. It's sort of playing like 
a fire behind a firewall and it keeps burning until eventually it pops through and we finally have to deal with it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned earlier around the vicarious trauma for our first responders. And I know as a frontline worker for the Children's Aid, um, certainly I was exposed to trauma. That was my job. Go in, deal with trauma, be the first one on the scene. And I can't tell you how many of my coworkers would be off on sick leaves or um, just really struggling day to day. And we have that compound trauma happening with these fields as well, whether it's ambulance drivers and things like this. And in addition, there's the stigma of when you take time off work, then you're putting more work on your already high-worked cl- um, coworkers. So that guilt that comes along with that. So it's not really talked about as much as it should be in the workplace, or it's a one-day everybody mandatory has to go for a workshop and then we don't talk about it again and don't take time off and you know all of that sort of thing so it's really interesting the systems because the people who are put in place to help people through traumatic events they themselves are also dealing with trauma every day and not having an outlet so i love that we're having this conversation because we're really helping so many people by starting that conversation and also offering some solutions so Karen, what would you say are your favorite solutions or your favorite ways of starting the conversation around trauma and choosing a different way of living? Right. So let me, let me, I'll get to that in a moment. I just want to go back and, and, and make a comment about, you know, the first responders and in therapy. And you're absolutely right. Um, therapists listen or social workers listen to patients' problems all the time. And so what we don't, really understand and what people need to be quite aware of when somebody's listening to somebody else's trauma and the graphic details in some situations or not when you listen to somebody's trauma over and over and over again then you are also being traumatized unconsciously without awareness and with not not by anybody's fault and so the same techniques that you're using for your client should be working for you so if talking to your client's not relieving your client, then talking about your own stuff, which, you know, people are bound by the confidentiality, so, you know, we can't go and talk to our family and friends, but, I mean, you should be able to talk to a colleague. But if talking's not working for your client and it's probably not working for you, then both people get into burnout. So I want you Absolutely. to think about that because it's not working for your client and you're carrying emotional stress, then what you're doing is not working. So what can we do differently? And so Absolutely. in my field, I've been in the field for, I've been between healthcare, between nursing and, and, and mental health field. I've been working for now 30 years. And uh, my first part of my practice worked in cardiology. I worked in a busy academic center in the Maritimes. And I used to carry an arrest beeper. And that arrest beeper, when somebody had a code in the hospital, they would call the arrest team, so cardiac arrest team. And I was the cardiac nurse every time I'd be on shift. And I was 20 at this point. So think about this. A 20-year-old getting the pager going off because somebody has died in the hospital that we have to resuscitate. The buzzer goes off, and I have to run. Can't use elevators in case the elevator stops. I have to run 10 floors up, or the hospital is 10 floors high, and it had eight, it had six wings. And so you had to run up to wherever the person was. It was often in the 10th floor, ironically. And so by the time I got there, I was so amped up on adrenaline because I had to save somebody's life that eventually even the thought, even hearing somebody running in the mall, a child running in the mall, I'd stop and freeze. Now, is that PTSD? Absolutely. Did it, mm-hmm. did it change my life that I didn't have, couldn't work? No. Did I like to have the pager? No, I would have adrenaline running all day long on shift or night shift when I had that pager, even if it didn't go off. I was 20. I was, that was between 20 and 25. I mean, who can cope with that? We can't when we don't realize. So even somebody in that situation didn't realize. So it wasn't until I had my children and I had, would be shopping with them or in the grocery store and they'd run and I would, I would just have this adrenaline rush saying, what is wrong with me? Now, I didn't have to take off time and I shifted from an ICU position to in the community. So the, um, the traumatic events, we're not being replayed as far as in the emotional, like in, in the, in the hospital situation, because those triggers were gone. But if, when I used to walk into the hospital before I used the techniques that I use, 
I would actually get this adrenaline rush. It's like, this is crazy. Walking into a hospital would do the same thing. So think about it from a therapist. If we're listening to people all day long, of course, we are going to hear the trauma. You don't have to experience the event. And so many therapists are actually psychotherapists, psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists often have trauma based on listening to the trauma trauma of their clients. So if it's not working for your client and it's not working for you, then it's time to think outside the box. Absolutely. I went on on and and educated myself in the area of therapy and and all therapeutic approaches, and I realized that working with clients wasn't getting me the end results. So as a registered psychotherapist and a registered nurse practitioner, I have dual licensing. I can diagnose and treat with pharmaceuticals, and I can do therapy. But frankly, I don't do the pharmaceutical route because it's just a bandage approach. There's many people out there that can do that. And I work really hard, actually, to get my clients off of those meds once I heal the pain. And so when I was counseling people and realizing that talking wasn't helping them, they would feel better when they'd leave. I actually would like to see them. They'd, have, have, they'd feel better when they left, but they come back to them the same way. And that made me start to think, we need to do something different. What is it that I need to do to help my client get the end result that they're looking for? And at the same time, keep me out of hearing the story all the time. And so quite a few years ago, I came upon um, uh, different techniques from tapping to EMDR, which are all great therapies to actually work to help with the unconscious trauma. But what I've really found that works well, and I actually utilize it extensively in my practice, is neuro-linguistic programming, timeline therapy, and hypnotherapy. Over the past seven years, I've been working with those techniques along with some talk therapy and CBT, but that comes after we clear up the pain because it works at the unconscious level. And when you go back and you actually can take away the emotional, uh, the emotional charge from the tra- traumatic event, only then can you turn off the adrenaline and all the other fight-or-flight responses that happen at the unconscious level and can the person then settle down. You have to get rid of the fear. And NLP and timeline therapy and hypnotherapy does an amazing job of getting rid of those emotions. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know I've been using those strategies um, since just September. And the results for my clients has been absolutely incredible. And having years and years of experience in talk therapy, I know that it went, it didn't, something didn't quite resonate. I would, you know, be wondering why are my clients seeing a psychologist, psychiatrist, whoever, for 20 years, like this is a long time. What's happening? Where's the disconnect that they're not getting better? They seem to be either staying the same or getting worse and lots and lots of medications. There needs to be another way. And so when I started my healing journey, um, I really was very firm of, no, I, I don't need the medication on top of what's going on. I don't need an addiction issue on top of what's going on. Can we just treat what's going on so I can get better? And that worked for me, and it's no judgment wherever you're at in your healing journey. But I can tell you the results I've found with my clients over the last four and five years with alternative solutions and the permanent changes, it's been incredible. And definitely these ones Karen is talking about, they work and they work permanently, which is, which is incredible. And that's what we want to see for our clients. Exactly. And, and, you know, as a healthcare provider, the last thing you want to do is not see your client get results. And so Mm -hmm. for me, I am constantly looking for what other research is out there. What other techniques has somebody has used that actually has gotten results. And then I train and I model that type of technique. And at the end of the day, you know, the interesting thing with the brain is this. Other than a few people that actually look at brain sex studies, and Dr. Daniel Amen, who is uh, one of my uh, the physicians that I follow uh, for extensively as far as brain health, because he does use brain sex brain spec studies in his clinics across the U.S., we don't look at the brain before we throw a chemical at it. Now, I can diagnose and treat with pharmaceuticals, and I know I'm going to step out on the line here, but I just really want people to think about this from a concept of treatment. If we test x-ray, scan, blood work, we do all the testing for every other diagnosis we make in healthcare. The one thing that we don't do, we don't do blood work for uh, mental health. We don't do, unless we're looking for a thyroid, we're looking for something that's from a medical standpoint, but the visit, like the GP or an internist would do that. 
the psychiatry doesn't do blood work for for um, specific diagnosis unless they're questioning something down the road. But they don't do blood work. They're not doing scans. They're not doing anything to say what's going on inside of that head. And what part of the brain is being fired up? And there's certain parts of the brain that fires up depend on if you're depressed or if you're anxious or if you have PTSD. There's certain areas that's fired up. And the firing up is a symptom that the body is in dis-ease or the brain is in dis-ease. We just throw a chemical. And, you know, years ago, SSRIs were created to use for a short-term um, treatment, not a long-term. But what I see frequently in clients that come to me, they have two and three and four drugs. And they come into me and they're basically a zombie. Now, they don't have any feelings because they've turned off all emotion. But that's not life. Their brain, they weren't born with an abnormal brain. So then why do we have to have them believing that there's something wrong with them as opposed to let's get rid of the trauma? Absolutely. So I help people understand that there was a time in their life that they weren't depressed or they weren't anxious or they weren't. And for most people, they can tell you exactly when they notice those feelings happen. So to talk about just the event that, the, that they might remember as an adult or, you know, coming back from a military event, yes, that's tons of trauma. But what else is in their life before that? They might have been an anxious child. They might have had somebody who had depression in their family. So there's a, a whole theory around component of, of genetics, and, and there's a lot of treatment that we can use outside of pharmaceuticals to help that, like nutraceuticals and, and nutrients in the brain. We haven't even talked yet about nutrients in the brain and how food affects uh, symptoms of mental health, and that's a piece that we miss. Um, that I utilize in my clients. And so we have to really start saying, okay, our clients need to realize there was a time that you weren't feeling this way. Let, we've got to get you back to that. And we can. But just using pharmaceuticals is not going to do it unless we actually get the pain to be relieved or and actually healed. So imagine you have an injury in the brain. And Sam, you know all about that, right? So if the brain is injured. I sure do. <laughs> right? The brain is injured. Then, then the brain's not going to function well. But when the brain is healed, then you can function normally. Because we know in the study of neuroplasticity that brain, the brain can heal. It's very um, pliable. It's very plastic, soft plastic. It has a great ability to actually heal when you get rid of the trauma from the emotional component, as well as you, you actually saturate the mind with nutri- nutrients such as amino acids. We can get the brain to heal. Yeah, that's so cool. And, you know, I want just to rewind just a little bit. For those who are listening and aren't familiar with some of the terms that we're using, can you share what the SSRIs are? Right. So the SSRIs are serotonin um, uptake uh, inhibitors. So what they do is this, is that, so I'll give you a little sort of a biology lesson here, is that we have neurons in the body. We have many, many neurons in the body and the neurons in the brain specifically. That one side of the neuron produces or releases the, um, the produced serotonin. Then there's an opening between, which is called the synaptic cleft. And then the other side is the uptake side, where it actually gets absorbed back in and then gets broken down into amino acids again, which then gets recreated or redeveloped into um, uh, serotonin and other of the neurotransmitters in the brain. When somebody doesn't make enough, then the, the SSRI actually brought, keeps the um, serotonin in that synaptic class as long as it can so we can get maximum effect. And a lot of people believe that if I don't have serotonin, it's because I have an abnormal ability to produce. That could be it. It also could be that we're not giving the body the proper amino acids to make them. So an SSRI is made to keep what we have there um, in the short term. And, and they do help initially, but then people will notice that after a while it doesn't work because if we're not producing serotonin, it can't keep it in the synaptic class. So we have to look at now the nutrients that we're eating. And protein is one of the things that people have to eat to get those neurotransmitters to be produced. Absolutely. So can you share what sources of proteins really help with this and maybe some of the other foods that do help? Right. So let, let me just take it back and, and talk about, if you don't mind, I'll talk about the neurotransmitters in the brain because there's a different one. So there's serotonin, which actually helps keep people to be positive, to have emotional flexibility, 
to have self-confidence and, and have humor. So if you have those symptoms of feeling that way, then you make enough serotonin. Um, and so another group of, of you know, sorry, another group of neurotransmitters would be the catecholamines. And catecholamines help with alertness and energy and focus and drive and enthusiasm and feeling happy, feeling great about life. And so if you don't have those, then you're lacking in catecholamines. Another one is GABA. GABA actually helps create calmness and sense of relaxation and able to deal with stress. And if you can't have, if you don't have those, you have the opposite of that, including a lot of muscle pain and feeling burnt out, you actually have low GABA, so you're not producing GABA. And then we have the endorphin groups, and those endorphins actually help you feel physical relief from pain and emotional relief from pain. They give you a sense of pleasure and reward. And um, so if you're not feeling those and you're not making those endorphins actually help you feel good. And then we have ones that actually help keep your blood sugar in check. And so if you're not eating the right foods that actually prevent you from crashing out, then you'll actually have a sense of uh, feeling um, craving and irritable and shaking between your meals. So our brain makes it amazing natural neurotransmitters that when they work together and they're in sync, we actually feel great. So if we look at how those are produced, it's through amino acids. And amino acids come from a protein source. And proteins could be anything from uh, animal protein to dairy protein to, for some people, they get some protein from uh, from the, the vegan and the vegetarian type of meals, such as uh, beans and lentils, but those are incomplete proteins. And what's interesting is that we've, we've seen an increased rise of anxiety and depression and emotional mental instability with the onset of high, higher carbohydrates, low fat, low protein diets in the past 40 years. So if we've seen the onset, and we don't have any more stressors in our life than somebody had back during World War One and World War Two and the Great Depression, then we have to look at diet as well. And so we need to actually get people to increase their protein source, increase their good fats, and then lower down these refined diet foods or box foods that are actually putting us into a nutrient deficit into our brain as well as making us crash out with our glucose levels. Absolutely. And, you know, a really important thing I want to share is we have a really high uh, trauma rate among low-income families. And the foods that they are given, whether, you know, what's donated to food banks, non-perishable foods that come in boxes, they're also nutrient deficient. So it's really important if you're working with these populations, if you happen to be in one of these populations, to have a look at this nutritional component and say, is, how is that impacting my mental health? How is that impacting my child who's been diagnosed with ADHD? Things like this. And when I do healing work with people, I really stress that healing needs to come from three levels. It comes from the physical body, which is what Karen and I are talking about right now with respect to nutrition. It also comes with exercise. It comes with um, healing physical pains. Then there's also the emotional piece, the spiritual piece, and then there's also the cognitive. So we're really talking right now about that cognitive and the impact with the body and how they work together because when we work with all three levels, that's where permanent change comes in for people. And when one is missed, we don't have a complete picture as to what's really happening. It's almost as though you have a picture and the background is all black. You're making a puzzle and you don't have the key pieces for the middle with the color to tell you what the image is. And that's really what we're, what we're talking about right now. Absolutely. And that's, you know, how I look at my practice and my clients that because of my background, both, both as a nurse practitioner, as well as a psychotherapist, I pull those two bodies of knowledge together. Um, and I do have some significant training and education in the, in the nutritional field but it has to be more specific than just the di uh, a diet. It's what are we mm -hmm. trying to get out of the diet to support yes. these neurotransmitters, which are also connected to um, other hormones in the body. Now think about this. If somebody is stressed and they actually are in fight or flight all the time because of the trauma that's going on in their head from their, from their post-trauma, and then they're trying to uh, raise their family on low income 
or they've been fired because they have Oprah's at work or they can't cope because they can't even leave their house. Now they have the whole financial stress and all that that goes along with it. And what happens is their adrenals kick in to try to compensate because that's the adrenal's job is to produce uh, that fight or flight response and endorphins and cortisol to get you sort of running away from uh, trauma. But if you're, if you're not ever leaving and it's a constant sort of fight or flight response, it's sort of like that standard transmission that gets stuck in first gear, but you're trying to go in 100 clicks. It's going to keep mm-hmm. on revving, but eventually there's nothing left. And what uh, ongoing cortisol level does, it actually burns out some of these neurotransmitters in your brain, such as GABA. So they Absolutely. work together in sync, but if you're burning things out, it also burns out serotonin. So if somebody's stressed and we just say, well, if they have low serotonin, let's give them an SSRI or another one of the antidepressants. And, you're, and we're not really looking back to say, well, why are they low in serotonin in the first place? Then eventually, if they're not making it, an SSRI doesn't matter if you have one, two, or ten on board. They're not going to help because there's nothing there to put in the snap to clap and hold it there. So we have to really start back and look, okay, what is it that the person's doing? It's really important, even in a therapeutic role, is if you're not asking them about their diet and their sleep and what's going on in the world and get the whole picture, then you're just talking about the one event that they're telling you about. And trust me, it's never the one event they're telling you about. It's that and everything else in behind it. Mm-hmm. Because people will tell you what they think it is, not what you have to figure out what it is. So what I found Absolutely. with my is that a lot of these people have trauma, but they have tons of trauma that come from their childhood. And between zero and seven of their life, the unconscious mind has no way to say if the, what they're seeing is theirs or not, or emotional stuff from their family or parents or, or being bullied, bullied in school, or for some there's been sexual abuse, and, and they don't know to accept it as their problem or fault or somebody else's, so they will always own it as themselves. And then you put all that stuff away and forget about it. And then somewhere down the road, there's a major traumatic event. And then it's just like a tsunami effect that happens. Mm-hmm. That flashbacks start coming back from things that have happened in the past. And, um, and if you don't go back and clear that up for them, then they will need to be medicated ex- extensively. And they will be off work permit. And they will have burnout. And they will not live their best life. And that's sad. Yep, absolutely. It absolutely is. And you know, one of the things that I really love doing, and I know that you really love doing, is working with people who have been told you're permanently disabled, you're off work forever. Because I can tell you, it was only six years ago, my husband was told that about me. And absolutely, that was not the rest of my life. And it doesn't have to be the rest of your life. Are there issues that come up for people? Absolutely. But there's always something There's always spark inside you that has something to give the world. And there's always something you can do that will bring you happiness and joy. It just might not look the way it did before. And so what's really wonderful is working with people like Karen is you can really help go back and clear up some of this trauma, the emotion that's attached to the events and come up with a plan for moving forward in your life. And of course, that's what I do as well. And Karen, um, She's wonderful at this, and I know a lot of people um, are really happy to have worked with Karen and rebuilt their life in this way. So thank you for that, Sam, and you're right. I mean, if you as a therapist or a healthcare provider or even a coach, I mean, a life coach can be trained in some of these techniques that even though I wouldn't recommend you working with somebody uh, with significant trauma because it might be outside your scope, but if you have these trainings as a coach, um, you can easily help people get through some of the basic stuff that can still be holding them back from be, be having their best life. Maybe they have a chronic ongoing sadness, but they're not really being treated for depression, but they've always felt sad. But they still work. They still do their thing, and they're, and they're just not feeling that they're at their best life. Imagine helping turn around those people before they're ever diagnosed, because this is the challenge, is that we in healthcare the only thing that we look through is the lens that we've been trained in. And so imagine if you have one pair of glasses that actually does everything, but they're really small and you have to really put your eyes almost closer together to see through that small little set of lenses. But what if as you look through that lens, you've actually missed all the stuff in the periphery that you could have noticed or could have changed your opinion. You've had a bigger picture. 
And so a lot of people have this belief in healthcare based on specific studies that they followed is that once you have these diagnoses, there's no treatment or the treatment is psychotherapy and SSRIs and most of those people don't have long-term lasting results, but this is the best we've got. So imagine you've read that and imagine you've taken on that now as a belief, as a therapist, and now you tell your patients, this is what the risk of, or this is what the rate of success is, or this is what people found that happens. And, they, and you tell them because they believe that for trauma, such as the one, you know, the, the trauma that you've gone through, uh, Sam, is that they told you that you would never have it better than you had. So mm-hmm. if you believe that, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today. You wouldn't, I wouldn't hear you on this amazing blog uh, talk radio. You and I wouldn't have met because you wouldn't have ever have left your house. Very so true. People, right? So the, the patient, the client, has to realize that they can accept or reject any prognosis that a physician or a healthcare provider or a nurse or a, or a therapist gives them. They're going to choose to accept it because the person who's given the information is doing the best they can with the pair of glasses they're looking to. Trust me, I don't believe anybody in healthcare believes they're doing any harm to a client. I do believe that they all believe they're doing the best they can. And there's nothing wrong with that, except for if we're not giving the client hope, they won't go, they won't run the road race. And the results for clients, 20% of what the patient decides will will determine the 80% of the action. We see this in sales all the time. The person who does 20% of the work tends to make 80% of the sales. So why is it? These people have taken on a belief that either I'm not going to listen to that diagnosis. I am going to prove them wrong, and I'm going to do what I need to do, and I'm going to get there, and I'm going to survive, and I'm not only to survive, I'm going to live my life well. And those people do well because they've taken on a belief that this is my, my challenge today, but it's going to be my opportunity tomorrow, and how do I do it? But if they take yeah. on the belief that their therapist or healthcare provider says that you'll always have this problem, and they believe there's nothing else out there, they will live in that same box. And so I work really hard with my clients on the onset to say, you know what, this is what you have. But if we get rid of, so let's look at the symptoms of PTSD. So let's look at fear, which links to anxiety, because it's really fear. If we get rid of the anxious thoughts that are in somebody's head, then we get rid of fear. Therefore, we get rid of PTSD. If we get rid of sad thoughts, because sadness, the accumulation of sadness creates depression, if we get rid of all the sad thoughts and the events that are connected to it, then we no longer have a person who's sad. Therefore, we no longer have a diagnosis of depression. So if we go back and look at what are the main symptoms of these diagnoses, and we go back and eliminate those symptoms from a standpoint of the root cause, then we can get rid of the diagnosis. Because Absolutely. once you've had a child, you're no longer pregnant, right? You don't call somebody pregnant if they've already had their child. But we will mm-hmm. hold on to a diagnosis consistently once they have it because we don't believe somebody can actually reverse it. We see it all the time with diabetes. If you change your diet, diabetics can normalize their sugars and it can become a non-diabetic. We see it also with depression. When you get rid of the sadness, you can get rid of that. And anxiety, the same thing. So look at it from a standpoint of what is it that we can do to get rid of the symptoms. And that comes from therapy, good nutrients, and exercise, positive thinking, positive affirmations, meditation, yoga, all the great things that change the neurochemicals in the brain, then we get results. Absolutely, absolutely. And I also want to really touch on the point that people who do have PTSD also often have something else with it, right? And so often we'll see people with PTSD, well, if it's from a car accident, they probably have some physical injuries. They probably have external stressors, like you're mentioning, the financial and things like that. They also have the external stressors. Perhaps they're working with an insurance company or legal or something like that, where they have to prove constantly that they're sick. So their mindset is saying, I'm sick, I'm sick, instead of I have this and I am more than this. I'm getting better every day, stronger and stronger every day. So they're not able to necessarily see the whole picture because they're getting these little snapshots and those puzzle pieces don't fit together. And I really encourage people when you're, when you're going through something like this, 
bring all your people to the same table. If not physically, then at least comparing their notes so that you can get a bigger picture because what happens sometimes is you're getting contradicting information, which can be quite overwhelming to somebody when Mm -hmm. you really could be getting that wraparound approach, which I've seen so much success in over the years where everybody's coming to the table and saying, I'm seeing this and this is how I can help. Awesome. And I'm seeing this and this is how I can help. And when you bring all of that help together, then you can get some really great success as well, rather than just looking at all these diagnoses and none of them fitting together. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting that if you sent, um, a person to 10 different, either psychologists and or psychiatrists, I will guarantee you that that, those, that person would come back with probably 10 different diagnoses. Absolutely, and, and I've seen it. I've seen it in my child welfare work over the years. Quite often people who are um, open in the system of child welfare have generationally been open in the system. And one of the things that I had a real passion for is going back, I would it didn't matter to me if it was a great grandmother. I'd go back and get those files on my desk so I could see the patterns. And you would see this. You would see people who've been sent to so many different practitioners and they're getting all these different diagnoses or they're getting conflicting recommendations on what to do about it. Exactly. So can you imagine when you're already low in all the resources you have to be happy in the first place that you're now told almost these doom-like diagnoses? And then people Absolutely. actually will actually own them. Now, you know, it's interesting. Um, worked, you know, I've had my husband's in cardiology, and we've had a cardiac practice for years as well. And, and years ago, one of our receptionist uh, secretaries who actually did a lot of the, the transcribing of, of his notes, uh, so would type his notes out, um, after uh, she wasn't doing it all the time, but she decided to work um, and just type for us because we had so many clients that needed it. So we opted to have her do that. And after about a month of her doing it, she came up to me and she said, Karen, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm having chest pain. I'm like, really? And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, okay, you're 30, you're a female, you know, you're healthy, you're fit, you eat well. I said, so, you know, let's talk about when this started. So I'm listening to her and about two weeks into her typing, she started feeling chest pain at times, she started feeling anxious at times, she started feeling... And I said to her, how many clients a day are you typing that you hear the word chest pain? And she said, probably eight or ten clients. I said, is it possible that when you're hearing the word chest pain, that you're actually taking on the symptoms? Now, first she thought I was a bit out to lunch, and that's fine. A lot of my clients think that when I talk about things outside (laughs) the box. But I said to her, okay, you know, I know you don't want to be front line, but I said, just for the next two weeks, can we actually put you back up at the front desk? I'll let somebody else do the typing for a while and just see how you're going. She said, okay, but I don't want to be up there long-term. I said, no problem. That's okay. But I just want to see. I just want to challenge this. And she went up there and her chest pain stopped. And so then when we, she go back downstairs and her chest pain would start again. See, and the reason why I'm telling the story is that people take on suggestions. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize. The marketing system knows how to do this really well. Every one of those ads that are on TV or on the radio have suggestions. Go by. So if we can actually take suggestion in marketing, uh, in advertisement, you don't think if somebody tells us a diagnosis that if we don't yet have it, that we may not unconsciously start to express what those symptoms are? The answer to is absolutely yes, unless you're aware and basically cancel out that comment in your head. You will start to create symptoms. So if somebody's not yet depressed or they're, they're, or they're, or they're sort of feeling sad and somebody gives a diagnosis of, of you know, major depression, I'm going to tell you right then and there, if they, haven't, if they don't have it officially or to the extent that it's been diagnosed, they will actually start to show up walking, their head down, you know, the body habitus looking like they're gazing down, no emotion, whatever. The minute you tell them that it's possible they don't have it, possible that they can actually get out of it, they actually lighten up. Now, you still have to go and do the work to get rid of the trauma, but you can just suggesting. And so practitioners have to realize that what they tell their client is very important. You have to start with hope that when we get rid of this, we can get rid of that. When you do this, you can do this. If you eat better, you'll feel better. You've got to give them suggestions that will help them shift. 
But we too often spend our time telling them the stats and what the side effects of the drugs, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, they will look online to find the side effects for the drugs yeah. as well. So suggestion is huge. So I work really hard at making sure I tell my client what I want them to expect in the positive so that they can actually Absolutely. start realizing they can feel better. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the whole spiritual side of healing as well. That hope alone, um, it's wonderful medicine all in it of itself. And that's that spiritual component. So you can imagine if you're bringing in some of the nutritional and physical changes Karen's mentioned and some of the um, mental mindset um, solutions that Karen's offering in addition to hope, you have wonderful opportunities for healing just in that. Absolutely. And that's the piece that often we in healthcare don't talk about the whole spiritual context, at least in Canada, we're not sort of open about that. And, um, but there's a lot of research to show that prayer, meditation, anything that gets you enlightened to your spiritual uh, evolve, um, evolution, uh, chakras and all that stuff that you teach as well, uh, Sam, all of that has proven to show positive results and healing, not just temporary, but healing in the mental health world. And, and it's really, really important to start putting the whole picture together. There's a lot of studies that show that people, and this is from a prayer standpoint, that, that when you have groups, uh, prayer groups can pray for somebody in a different part of the world, not even in front of them, that we've seen miraculous healings. So, you know, for people who don't have faith, they may say, well, that's kind of weird. But if you do have faith, then go back to your faith. If you come from a different faith, whether it's Christianity, whether it's uh, any other of third world um, a faith, utilize it, go back to it, get to people with like minds that have positive influence and in healing. Whether it is getting outside in the summer and getting in the sun by being grounded and having your feet on the, uh, on the earth, there's a lot of positive information around getting your um, energy level reset with the earth's uh, um, hurts and energies. But we don't talk about that in health. So that's kind of weird for people. But really, is it? Or is it what we're missing? Like, we have to really start to think outside the box. And I really challenge uh, practitioners that if your patients come in, clients come in and say they're trying something different, don't stop them. Let them do it. Even Mm -hmm. if it works for a placebo effect, let them do it. If they believe standing on their head for five minutes a day is helping them, who cares if you don't think it will? Let them do it. It's really important to get outside of just knowing that Treatment, the only treatment is a pharmaceutical. And I don't minimize it because we need them to save our lives. But Mm -hmm. we need to look outside to save ourselves by adding all this other stuff and utilize that as a temporary means. And once the healing's done, then we can able to get away from that and live our best life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Karen, can you share PTSD-specific? What are some things that you really recommend that people can do in their everyday life? to help um, minimize and heal previous trauma. Right. So, so you do need somebody who's trained in these techniques to help you get to the root cause. I mean, unless you're trained in them yourself. And you know what? There are people who go and get training in the field. And, and by the way, I certify healthcare providers in the techniques they use. I also certify non-healthcare providers in these techniques because from a standpoint of self-healing, if you go through and learn these techniques yourself, you can help yourself. Um, so, you know, if you're really keen on, on taking on the world yourself, then train some of these techniques to help you. Um, but if not, find a therapist or a coach or a practitioner of neurolinguistic programming, including timeline therapy and hypnotherapy. Timeline therapy um, actually is a subset of NLP, and um, the, the timeline therapy gets the permanent results. It goes allows us to go back and find the initial event where certain emotions have been um, caused damage on the psychological level, anger, sadness, fear, resentment, and guilt. And when you go back and you release those emotions and fear is where trauma is involved, you will actually help um, the, the most of the emotional stuff will be gone. Or somebody who's trained in EMDR, hypnotherapy as well, as long as they get back to the root cause, not just the one event. Um, so if you're just going to somebody who's doing talk therapy or, or CBT alone, that's conscious talking. That does not get to the unconscious level. So be very clear with who, you, who you're working with. 
grief counseling, uh, PTSD should not take uh, five years to get through. You should be able to get rid of PTSD between six and 12 hours of work. And if you're not, mm-hmm. then they're not getting to the pain. So look to see who you're working with. The second thing is get on a really good nutrient diet. And so that nutrient-based diet is something that's high in protein. And even though I'm specific with which ones, but for somebody who is in you know, a socioeconomic challenge, any protein you can get, just get it. And then we'll work later on on getting it more perfected but you know chicken and fish and 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 um an animal like beef products is we just need the amino acids okay if somebody has the ability to have more income and they can spend more on 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 uh, animals than animals that come from grass-fed not corn-fed because they are actually better in in the amino acids than the corn-fed which is a cheaper way of raising animals in canada and the u.s do you want grass-fed when you can get away from anything from a box um, and um, because those those foods, including those healthy cereals, are basically just sugar-driven. Uh, they cause insulin release, which actually causes uh, increase and decrease of those serotonin. So we crash out, and we actually feel bad. So you want to get rid of some more fruits and vegetables and uh, what we call low-glycemic carbohydrates, the ones that have lower sugar, um, and, uh, and then good fat, so like natural peanut butters and, and avocado and olives, and add lots of that to your diet. Fat doesn't make you fat, people. If you're worried about weight gain, fat actually helps you burn off, but you need fat to keep your brain uh, going. It's part of the fuel source. And, um, and if you do have weight to, to lose, it will actually help take away some of that beef store, which happens when you're not eating well or if your cortisol levels are high. So diet's important. Do things that are exercise that you can. And somebody's feeling sad or anxious, they may not feel like doing very much, but even if they walk around the block five minutes, if that's all you can do a day, and then increase it to 10, you can increase it to 20, start working up. And the more aerobic exercise you can get or even weight-resistant training, you actually build up those endorphins, which helps you naturally feel well. And so that's important. And then things that quiet your mind. So you need to do things like meditation. And by the way, nobody can sit down and meditate and do it well after the first couple of minutes. Everybody's mind wanders. But the more you practice, the more you keep yourself trying to just notice what's going on inside your head and not thinking about stuff, the more you can get there. So use use, um, meditation music. Download something that's really spa-like that actually will lower down your brain waves so you can actually get that calmness. Um, and then find somebody who can help you out with nutraceuticals. So things that can uh, elevate serotonin like uh, 5-HTP or tryptophan and GABA. And those will help you. There's lots of them. But you need to find a, a healthcare provider that can give you specifics based on what your symptoms are. And some of them you can't take if you're on SSRI. So you want to be very careful with, with combining. But if you find somebody who's very well knowledgeable in amino acid therapy, that actually can restore those neurotransmitters can actually help you get off some of your medications. If you're not on the mill, settle you down so you have to actually start to feel better faster. Wonderful. Thank you. And one thing that you taught me that I thought was so interesting, I'm so grateful that you taught this to me was the impacts of when you're doing different therapies, when you're doing different things with your body and you're starting to feel better and you are on some SSRIs, you may experience a bit of a crash and need to have that conversation with your care provider about what you are doing, because if they're not aware of the whole picture, they may actually increase your dose rather than decrease it. Right. So that's a conversation that does not always go well with a healthcare provider who's prescribed because they're not used to people coming off their meds. But what's interesting is when you get rid of anger, sadness, fear, resentment, and guilt, and the trauma that's been triggering off the stress, which then decreases your serotonin. It's sort of like when you get rid of it, it's sort of like you're turning the tap back on to start making serotonin. So when you're making it, then what happens is you can have an overload of serotonin, and when the SSRI is in place, it keeps it in the synaptic class. Then you can have side effects which mimic the same things that you put on in the first place. Because if you look at the side effect uh, panel of all antidepressant, antipsychotic drugs, they're actually similar to what you're actually being treated for in the first place. So often when, they're on, when, when there's a change and then, they, and then somebody might feel that they're worse, that the knee-jerk reaction would be to add more SSRI or something else as opposed to backing off. But that can help it happen just with talk therapy. It is techniques that actually get rid of the pain, such as 
neurolinguistic programming, time I therapy, and hypnotherapy where the client's feeling better because they're gotten rid of the triggers. And when you get rid exactly. of the triggers, then, then we can actually start to bring down the medication only. And some people come off of them completely. Some people come down in half. But anything is better than being on high doses. So, yes, often physicians will do the knee-jerk reaction of adding more, but it's often the side effects that we're now working on. So instead of adding another drug or more, we actually have to back it off. But I love that you use therapeutic approaches. Thanks so much for sharing that because it's so important. And I know I I can tell you for years I would have, you know, clients that are starting to do better. They had maybe moved away from some of the stress triggers and incorporated exercise and, and they were doing different things. And like, I'm feeling a bit better, but then, you know, last week I had a crash. So my meds are back up, you know, and, and now it makes so much more sense. So, you know, pay attention to these things. Have these, this is the biggest, most important thing. Have the conversations. Have them with your family members, with your friends, with the people you meet, with your, with your care providers, whatever that looks like for you. Have the conversations and start choosing to feel good. Do the things that help you feel good and have the conversations around what you want for your life because regardless of what you're going through, I can promise you, there's more waiting for you. There's good stuff waiting. It's just about being in a space to be able to embrace it. Karen, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Is there any last thoughts that you think our listeners really need to know before we end the show? I guess the most important is don't take a diagnosis as your, as your permanent life. And it's your job to actually take, take charge of your own life and start looking, start reading things that are outside the box to help treat whatever you're dealing with, whether it's PTSD or any other emotional challenges. And more importantly, start to educate people around you. Um, our medical community are educated in just things that, are, that they are educated in, and they do the best they can. But some of us actually step outside the box. Look with somebody who's got a good, really solid understanding of healthcare, mental illness from a medical model, as well as bringing in other things. And you can actually join those two um, mindsets very beautifully. Don't stop anything that you, you should be on unless you get advice, but know that sometimes these medications are on are causing side effects and it's not just, uh, and they're not helping you because they're actually worse for you, but don't do anything unless you have the advice of somebody who knows exactly what they're doing, but know that there's hope. There's always hope. You didn't always feel this way. And if you did, it's probably started earlier on in your life, but you know that you have something better. And so just go after it and do it. Thank you so much, Karen. I've loved having you on the show. I would love to have you on the show again to talk about another topic because I know you have so much experience and I know our listeners have really loved this. So Karen, how can our listeners reach you, follow you, and have you got anything coming up that they might be interested in? Right. So they can check out my website at lifezone.ca. I have karenhordovenko.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. So you can find my name I'm in those places, either Lifezone or Karen Hordovenko, um, Coach Karen H. Um, I do lots of trainings. I do trainings for, for medical and non-medical practitioners in neurolinguistic programming, timeline therapy, and, um, hypnotherapy, and NLP coaching. Um, which is really important to seven-day train. I do this twice a year. I do a master level. In the master level, I add a lot more in the area of mental health. So whether it's a healthcare provider or somebody who's in the coaching field, I give them this whole extra information on how other things that we should add as far as diet and you know, therapies, that, that would be added to it. Um, but, but more importantly, I actually just work with people one-on-one. So I do a lot of trauma work. I can do things from afar. I can do things in-house. And most of my clients are six to eight hours long, PTSD, maximum of 12. I'm always looking to perfect. And the more people I get out there who's in the world, such as you, Sam, and myself, that get trained in these techniques, we can change healthcare. So I'm looking for uh, therapists who, are, who are, have long-term clients that they can't shift. I'm looking for social workers who work in trauma all the time. They want to have some great techniques to help people get over that hump and help those families. I'm looking for physicians who are doing lots of counseling and, and, and psychiatrists who want to look outside the box and say, what else can I do? So the more people I train, the more people that can do what I'm doing, we can actually make a real shift in mental health because if we don't, we're just going to keep going down the same path. So please check out my website. Um, you can send me an email at info at lifezone.ca and uh, happy to give you direction if I can. And thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciate it. Always love chatting with you. Um, love you a lot. You do a lot of great things in your field. 
I'd recommend Sam to anybody who's looking for a coach as well as a psychic medium. Uh, She's awesome. So uh, please check her out as well. Thank you so much, Karen. And I will see you, if not later today, I will see you soon. I'll be at Life Zone tomorrow, or High Rise Group tomorrow um, with a full day of readings and healing and lots of events coming up for me. So I'm in Sudbury this weekend. I will be in Niagara Falls the following weekend, Los Angeles the weekend after that, and Regina two weeks after that. So there's lots of opportunities to connect with me wherever you are. Just visit samblack.ca to see a full list of what's going on. You know you guys can always find me on Facebook, um, Sam Black Psychic Medium, and also Sam Black Coaching Solutions, and on Instagram, Sam Black Psychic Medium. And if you've enjoyed this show and you can't wait to hear more, consider subscribing. It's on YouTube or on iTunes. It's on Blog Talk Radio. I always post it to my pages as well. And I'm looking forward to connecting with all of you soon. I hope you have a beautiful day. Go out there and hug somebody. Make somebody's day bright, extra special. And I'm sending you all lots of love. Take good care.